to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, Liberty friends, Liberty fans, Liberty newbies, I welcome you back in once again, maybe for the first time, to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Or Lions of Liberty Radio, if you're listening over on Daily Paul Radio, where this program can be heard every single Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to tune in there, not just to hear our show, but also for the plethora of great hosts that appear over on that radio station, including last week's guest, Robin Kerner. Be sure to check that out. And you know, I have a lot of guests on this show. I've given a lot of time to my guests to share their viewpoint. You know, be sure to go check out the archive, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, and you know, see some of the great interviews we've done. We've had Ben Swan, Walter Block, Glenn Jacobs, WWE's Kane, a lot of names you've heard of, a lot of names you haven't heard of, you know, all sorts of great guests. But I spend so much time thinking about my guests, preparing for my interviews, Sometimes I forget about number one. Oh, thanks, Mark. And in this case, for the purposes of the show, number one is not just myself. And not me. But the Lions of Liberty family. We are not just a radio show. We are not just a podcast. We are also a website, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideals of liberty daily. Oh, I get it. The whole shebang. Brian, too? And today I just want to take a minute to let you guys know what we've got going on over at Lions of Liberty. And as I said, we strive to advance the ideas of Liberty Daily, and we're starting that off every single morning, at least Monday through Friday, with a new feature that we've recently started in the last week or two called The Morning Roar. That's right. Every single morning, Monday to Friday, you can come to lionsofliberty.com and you will find The Morning Roar, which is just a little roundup of some stories that you know you may not see on CNN, you might not even see in your regular news feed or social media. We go out and try to find some stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and try to give you, you know, a little bit of our liberty perspective on those stories as well. So be sure to come back and check The Morning Roar. The Morning Roar every single day, Monday to Friday. Of course, every Monday we've got our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray. Murray, Murray. Where we go back and take a look at a passage, a video, an article by the great libertarian Murray Rothbard. And we take a look at it. We don't always even agree with Murray, but we like to give his perspective. And, you know, give our little spin on it, as always. And, of course, every Thursday, you will have a new edition of this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast. You can find it over at our website before it's shot out there to the rest of the world on Daily Paul Radio. And then every single Friday, of course, we have Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt... You know, enough Jim Beam, and it opened up my mind, and... ...goes out and tries to find a story about some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know. And take a little look... Again, at something that you might not see in the mainstream media. Give our liberty take on it. Look at all sorts of outrageous things. Not just things being committed by the police state, but felonies committed by politicians, by average citizens, people that commit crimes that maybe shouldn't be felonies. We take a look at the whole thing. So we've got a lot going on at lionsofliberty.com, so come and check us out regularly. That's in addition to our, all sorts of our regular features, our other contributors, James Miller, Bionic Mosquito, Daryl Walters, we've got all sorts of great guys contributing to our site. And hey, if you're interested in contributing, yep, drop me an email, Mark, M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. We're not, you know, necessarily taking submissions regularly, but you know, I'm always interested in new writers and new people that have 
maybe a solid base of liberty, perhaps a new perspective. So, you know, feel free to drop me an email if you have an idea about something that you'd like to contribute as well. Now, on today's show, I want to touch on something that we discussed last week with my guest Robin Kerner, founder of Blue Republican. Now, one thing I think Robin is really great at is reaching out to people that are not of a liberty persuasion currently. You know, they're not people that are already sold on this whole ideas of individual liberty. And I think it's safe to say that almost all of us were not born as passionate advocates of the ideas of liberty. We had to get there. We had to find our own path there. And we all got there in various ways. Some of us are still getting there. We're all still learning all the time. That's why we strive to advance the ideals of liberty. We're always looking to advance these ideas, come together on a consensus about exactly what they mean. But it's important for us to find common ground and common understanding with people of all ideologies and all backgrounds. And then we can kind of show those people why liberty helps them best achieve their ends. And my guest today is part of an organization that nobody would accuse of being libertarian. Most people would probably call them leftist or progressive. Now, but terms like this hold us back. They stymie conversation, and it's important to first find that common ground with people that we can agree with on some major issues, particular people who are extremely passionate, because these are the kind of people you want on your side, even if they don't fully see your worldview right now. And you can still work to advance certain agendas that you agree on. My guest today is certainly passionate about what she is doing. She is a national coordinator for Code Pink, a women-initiated grassroots peace and social justice movement. She has lived and volunteered in the West Bank. She has led a peace delegation to Pakistan to protest the ongoing drone warfare there. And she is on the board of directors of the Tree of Life Educational Fund, which promotes peace in the Middle East. Allie McCracken, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks for coming on today, Allie. And, you know, it's obvious from my little introduction there that you're very active. You're pretty much a full-time activist, from what I gather. So, you know, how did this stuff all start for you? How did you first become passionate about issues of war and peace? And how did that passion lead into your current role with Code Pink? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm on the board of directors of the Tree of Life organization, which is a group based in Connecticut, which is where I grew up and my senior spring, senior year of college spring break, the Tree of Life took me for the first time over to Palestine, which is where I learned about the horrible injustices that are inherent in U.S. foreign policy, specifically giving Israel so much military aid. And then, of course, right around the time that I was in college, we, we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. And so a combination of all those factors really kind of radicalized me and uh, made me more outspoken. And after I graduated from college, I moved to the West Bank for several months to spend more time there. And upon returning, I somehow magically landed an internship and then a job with Code Pink. And so ever since then, I have been a full-time activist. You were accurate in saying that. And, um, you know, my interest, the issues I work on with Code Pink have broadened. I mean, it feels like every week we're doing something new. And it's really great. And I feel very lucky and privileged to be in this position. Allie, can you tell us a little bit more about your time in the West Bank? What did you specifically see there that opened your eyes to some of the problems associated with U.S. foreign policy? You know, I spent some time in Israel proper as well, and 
there's lots of issues. In the West Bank, obviously, there's a, a brutal military occupation where the freedom of movement for the Palestinian people is extremely restricted. I went through the checkpoints every day and had Israeli soldiers pointing their guns at me. I experienced the water shortages that exist because the Israelis control all the water in the West Bank. The electricity shortages, the sound grenades that they send off, you know, spontaneously just to scare people. Um, I saw the settlements eating up land. I've actually been back several times over the years, and each time I go back, I see the settlements eating more and more land, and I hear more stories about people's homes being demolished. So my experience in the West Bank was, I mean, it was just like a really, really tiny, kind of relatively disconnected taste of what their reality is every day. But there is also the reality of the Arab Israelis, the Palestinians living within the 48 borders, who experience a whole different kind of discrimination, where they're second and third class citizens, they aren't allowed permits to develop the infrastructure, so they're stuck in these ghetto-like areas, and they're discriminated against when it comes to housing, education, transportation. So it really is a terrible situation. And, and you know, as Americans who pay taxes, we're all complicit. You know, we send $3.1 billion every year to Israel. And so I felt like it was my personal responsibility to speak out and act out against all that. You know, there's something you mentioned there that I think often gets lost in the conversation about the Israel-Palestine thing. You know, obviously, there are a lot of Palestinians facing major hardships, but there are also Arabs that live within Israel that, while they might not be going through the same things that are going on in maybe in the West Bank or in Gaza, but they don't have necessarily the same rights as, I guess, quote-unquote, normal Israelis or Jewish Israelis. And, you know, I don't want to spend an entire show. We could spend hours probably talking about the history of the Middle East conflict and how that all came about. But, I mean, from my perspective, which is from the libertarian perspective, the way I see the problems in Israel, in Palestine, in Gaza, is that everyone talks about this is Israel's land or this is the Palestinians' land or this kind of thing, but... It's ignoring this whole idea of private property ownership and chucking that to the side. But I think if we really break it down, that's where it all comes down to. Because at one point, about 100 years ago, there were people living in that area. There were Jews living in that area. There were Arabs living in that area. There were Arab Christians. There were all sorts of different kinds of people just living there because that is where they had always lived. And it's only when you started getting these kind of imperial governments coming in and starting to slice things up. You know, you had the British come in and start dividing things up. And it's only when that starts to happen, when you remove people's natural right to their own property, that we sort of see all these conflicts starting to emerge. Suddenly it's called an Israeli state, and you have some people pushing out Arabs that used to live there. Then at the same time, you might have Israelis that, you know, legitimately should live there that might end up on the other end of attacks from Palestinians, all due to this issue. So... And that's a little bit of a rant there, I know, but I'm just wondering, I guess, maybe what you think of my perspective there. Yeah, well, you're correct in saying that at one point in history, the Arabs and the Jewish population of what is now Israel did live together. It's a misconception that this conflict has been going on for thousands of years. I really think that having Israel as a Jewish state has presented what is commonly referred to as the demographic threat of Arabs outpopulating the Jewish population in Israel and therefore threatening its religious nature. And so what it really comes down to now is how many Arabs are too many Arabs in Israel? What we see now is the process of ethnic cleansing. We see them being thrown out of the West Bank and refugees created because of the settlements and home demolitions. 
we see population of Gaza just being killed off every few years by massive Israeli raids. And the Arab Israelis in Israel proper being thrown off their land, like the Bedouins, for example, who systematically put into reservations either in Israel or thrown into Jordan or Lebanon. So it's really complicated, but it's an issue of property, but it's also an issue of ethno-supremacy where you have one population that thinks that it has the right to anyone's land as long as they get it, you know? Yeah, and some of what you're talking about reminds me of a lot of what we hear in the debate here at home with the immigration debate. You know, oh, we can't have, quote unquote, these people coming over and taking our jobs. Uh, that kind of language, it seems similar to me, and it, it ties back into some of the other things you were talking about when you saw in the West Bank. You went through security checkpoints everywhere. They utilized sound cannons to use psychological warfare. And now this is the same kind of stuff that we're seeing back here in the United States. In Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, there were some protests at, I think it was the G4 or G8 or one of those G conventions, and the Pittsburgh police came out heavily armed. They used just what you're describing, these kind of like sound cannons that are just meant to shock people and, and screw them up, I guess. It seems like a lot of these issues that we're talking about overseas can be applied back at home. And that kind of leads me into another topic I want to discuss, which is something you've also been very active on, is the use of drones. And both domestically, as we're starting to see now, but primarily overseas, where drone attacks have been used in multiple countries, in Yemen, in Pakistan. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that Code Pink and yourself have done regarding the drone war? Sure, Mark. Uh, not to backtrack too much, but I just want to point out that I, I think you're totally correct. There Absolutely. are a lot of parallels between the militarism of the U.S. and of Israel. And one thing that's interesting to know is that the company that built the wall between the U.S. and Mexico is also the same company that built the wall between Israel proper and the West Bank, which I think is really fascinating. I wonder who those guys are uh, connected with. Yeah, the name of the company is LBT, L-B-I-T. Anyways, yeah, there's this whole parallel strategy of divide and conquer, of militarizing borders and pursuing military means instead of diplomatic solutions or with absolutely no semblance of human rights taken into consideration. And so Something else that's also being used on our border and by Israel and Palestine are drones. And we share drone technology with Israel. It was actually an Israeli who came up with the technology for the first weaponized drone. You mentioned the U.S. is using drones in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and we don't know where else. Uh, drone bases are all over the world now, especially in North Africa. And we at Code Pink, we've been doing a lot over the last couple of years about drones. Um, the co-founder of Code Pink, Nadia Benjamin, wrote a book called Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, which is available for sale on our website, CodePink.org. We also have hosted two international drone summits, bringing experts and drone strike victims over from Yemen and a drone strike lawyer over from Pakistan. Our first summit was the first ever international summit about drones. Uh, we've also visited Pakistan, like you mentioned in the beginning, met with drone strike victims. We've been to Yemen. I didn't go on the trip, but my colleagues were all there. We've really tried to highlight the stories of the people who are being victimized by these policies because since the CIA is in charge of the drone strikes in Pakistan and Yemen, they're still not officially acknowledged as government programs. And so not only has there never been any kind of compensation for these victims, there hasn't even been an apology. So 
we've really been campaigning to move public opinion on these drones, and we see that we've been very successful. Two years ago, the favorability rate of drones was at 80%, and now it's at like around 60%, which is still pretty bad, but it's much better than it was. So we consider that a victory, and uh, we feel like you know, it's really important to highlight the voices from the countries that we're bombing so that we get some sort of compensation, even though obviously that'll never bring back the lives of their lost loved ones. What would you say to people out there that might say, you know, hey, drones are great. I, I actually had a friend of mine a year or two ago, I, I remember, who uh, he just came out and told me in a conversation, I love drone attacks, you know, and that, that just blew my mind. But the perspective that they come from is, you know, they'll argue, hey, you, you guys, you anti-war folks, you should embrace drones because it's a much, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes over here, cleaner way to wage war. You know, and of course, this idea accepts several presumptions. It accepts that there are these bad, terrible people out there all over the world, largely, I'm sure by coincidence, in research-rich nations that can do us immediate harm if they are not taken out. And it also assumes that the government has correctly identified those bad guys and that these attacks will only harm those specific people. So what would you say to those people who say that, you know, drones are better than, you know, waging a full-scale war? There's a lot of things that I, I wouldn't have and always do say to these people. I might leave something out. First of all, the, the idea of drones is that you, you take out an quote-unquote enemy combatant if they present an imminent threat and it's not feasible to capture them. In my experience speaking with drone strike survivors who, first of all, the feasibility of capture is oftentimes totally overlooked. Stories that I've heard are that a convoy that is ultimately targeted by drones has gone through several military checkpoints before it was hit. So it seems like these people could really actually be captured in a lot of instances, and it seems like we're really taking the easy way out instead of by droning them. And one theory around that is that, you know, President Obama pledged to close Guantanamo Bay Prison Obviously, he failed to do that, but instead of throwing guys in Gitmo, now he's just wiping them out with drones that he doesn't even have to deal with due process for them, which, you know, obviously the men in Guantanamo aren't receiving anyways. Also, you know, this idea that drones have surgical precision is totally erroneous. I mean, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism estimates that thousands of innocent people have been killed by these drones, and hundreds of them are children. They're really not accurate. Glenn Greenwald, based on the information that Edward Snowden gave him, revealed that the NSA and the CIA are working together to coordinate the drone strike targets, but those targets aren't based on people, they're based on SIM cards and cell phones, and that's how they choose who to take out, and that's obviously a totally inaccurate way of tracking someone down, and that's one of the reasons why so many civilian casualties result. Drone strikes are also a really short-term, short-sighted policy. We see in Pakistan and the tribal areas that drones are actually a recruitment for extremism. You know, it's not a surprise that if a drone hits someone's family, someone's totally innocent family and they're left alive, that it might drive them to seek revenge or retaliation. You know, I'm against violence of all forms, but I... You know, I know from talking to people there that it is really fueling the hatred towards the United States of America. Plus, I mean, it totally violates the sovereignty of Pakistan and of Yemen. And just because we're at war technically with Iraq and Afghanistan doesn't mean that we have the right to terrorize local populations with drones overhead all the time. 
there's just a few other reasons why they're bad, and I could probably talk about that for another hour, but I'll just stick with that for now. Well, sure. And yeah, what you're saying is perfectly logical. I mean, if I'm five years old and someone drops a bomb on my house and kills my whole family, maybe maims me, what is it I going to spend the rest of my life hating? Whoever did that. And when this happens on, on such a large scale, all it is doing is just further angering people, further proving what people are saying over there is right. That, yeah, the United States is the great Satan. Obviously, they're the ones dropping bombs and killing your family. So it's a perfectly logical response. And don't these drone strikes often, I mean, we always hear they're targeting bad guys, but it's odd where they seem to target them sometimes. Don't they often bomb wedding parties, uh, funerals, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's really disturbing. One of my good friends lives in Yemen, and she's back there right now, and you know, in December, a wedding convoy was bombed, and she knew members of the families, and she said that these were all just normal people. They had no, you know, terrorist affiliation, and there was n- nothing about it in the mainstream media here in the U.S. It was eerie and shocking how silent, you know, this country was about it. I mean, can you imagine if another country used an unmanned aerial vehicle to, or anything to bomb anyone, let alone a wedding in our country, that would be an immediate act of war. It's frightening, and it sets a frightening precedent, but I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that I found out today that Pakistan has taken this issue to the United Nations, and they're trying to get the UN to pass a resolution regulating the use of drones so that they're less indiscriminate and more regulated with more consent from the Pakistani government, which seems right now to be being like basically politically blackmailed by the American government into being complicit with these drone strikes. So, I mean, Pakistan and Yemen are two different issues, but we are indiscriminately bombing civilians in each place. And in Afghanistan, we see that drones are responsible for our third of civilian deaths in the past couple of years. So it's, it's really a disturbing trend. And you've actually made a little bit of I don't know if you'd call it progress, but it's certainly more progress than the average person on the street that's angry about drones would have made. And I just saw an article the other day. Can you tell us about a meeting? You actually got a meeting with Jay Johnson, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, who is also the man responsible for writing the legal memos which justify the overseas targeting of people with drones. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So back in November, when Jay Johnson just been nominated to be the secretary of the DHS, we were outraged because we know that he is the guy who legally sanctioned drone strikes, which are responsible for the death of so many innocent people. So we immediately tried to launch a campaign to raise awareness about this, much in the same way that we campaigned against John Brennan as head of the CIA. And I think we were successful in raising some awareness about who Jay Johnson is. And one of the things that we did was show up at his house. He has a big mansion in Georgetown here in D.C., and we played a movie about drones on the side of his house with a projector. And uh, we invited our friends, and they came out. We brought a popcorn machine, and even the neighbors joined. And at the end of the movie, he actually came outside and talked to us. Wow. And we expressed our concerns, and he said that he would schedule a follow-up meeting once he was confirmed. And I think it's really interesting, and I, and I hope that this inspires your, your listeners because, you know, there are people and there are lobbyists who wait years and years and years to get high-level meetings, but really, if you push your way into the face of power and demand to be heard, then it's not totally unfeasible, and so we had a meeting with him last week, and now that he's the secretary of the DHS, it's kind of like, you know, he's not in the capacity to rescind any of his legal opinions, and I don't even know if he could do that, so 
what we said to him while we were there is we, you know, we told him that we reminded him about all of the civilian casualties that have occurred as a result of his legal opinions. And, you know, we kind of shamed him a little bit, but then we, you know, talked to him from there about what I mentioned before about the militarization of our border, the use of domestic drones, spying on American citizens, violating our Fourth Amendment rights. And then we brought friends from different rights groups who spoke to him about the militarization of detention centers and, and deportations. And yesterday marked two million people that President Obama has deported from the U.S. So it was all very timely and relevant. And the secretary was, I don't know, he's kind of a smug guy. He was a little sarcastic with us. But, you know, we appreciated the fact that he took the time to listen to us. And now he can't say he didn't hear it. Uh, why do you think he agreed to that meeting? Because I mean, when I read that, it just blew me away. I mean, do you think it's just to kind of appease you guys a little bit <laughs> and, and let you guys think that you had a voice? Or do you think that maybe he legitimately wanted to hear what you guys had to say and might actually take this stuff into consideration? <laughs> That's a good question, Mark. Well, <laughs> we kind of think that we think it probably was to appease us. You know, he said himself that he knows us through our quote, creative ways of voicing our opinions. And uh, he thinks that meeting is going to stop us from holding him accountable for his past actions and what I'm sure he's going to do in the future. He's wrong. And we're already planning an upcoming action with our, with our cohorts here in D.C. in the near future that has to do with him. Uh, you mentioned earlier, sometimes you just got to push your ways in and demand to be heard. And that is something that you guys at Code Pink certainly excel at and you do it all the time i've seen you guys uh, i don't know how many of this stuff has involved you directly but i've seen you guys show up at congress uh protesting drones protesting the nsa you're always showing up places and just and just pushing your way in there i'm, I'm curious how many times have you been arrested doing this oh <laughs> it's not that bad i mean i've only been with coping for three years and you know we never try to get arrested well, I, I mean there's like sometimes there's deliberate actions like like we see the Keystone Pipeline actions that have been happening with the staged arrests that are very symbolic. I've only been arrested four times, which doesn't make my parents happy. I'm only 25 years old. But um, they were all kind of accidental, you know, at the wrong place at the wrong time, but intentionally in that place. I mean, it's not an end. It's just a consequence of speaking up. And it really comes from a place of privilege because, I, you know, I, I'm able to. Uh, like, I, I just spent a lot of time with an undocumented friend of mine who's working on immigrants' rights, and she doesn't have the same privilege and ability to be arrested as me because it jeopardizes her livelihood. So it really is something that I take seriously, and uh, and I, I don't like to brag about because, you know, it's, you know, it's important. Yeah, I guess I'm curious more like when you get arrested, does that really give you legal issues? I mean, do you have to really go through, do they really put you through the grinder, I guess, in the legal system? Or is it more like a symbolic thing? Like, look, we're going to arrest you for show. You know, we're going to show people they can't just show up here and say whatever they want. I, I'm just I'm just curious how much trouble it causes you, I, I guess, beyond the initial arrest. It's a combination. I mean, it's never really that bad, but the laws have definitely changed. Back when Coping started in the early 2000s, it was basically just a slap on the wrist, maybe, you know, a couple of community service hours after like something really bad. But now it's lots of community service hours, huge fines, possible jail time. The worst I've had to do, I almost spent a night in jail once for a banner drop, which was so stupid, you know, and like hanging a piece of cloth off a building. Totally nonviolent offense. I had to do community service hours for congressional disruption. 
which isn't bad. It's not bad at all, especially compared to what a lot of people face from, you know, our, our criminal injustice system. But it's definitely gotten a little bit more annoying to be arrested. And for whatever it's worth, the D.C. police... DC Is that police them coming system. now? <laughs> yeah. So I live, we live right, or our office is right near a hospital, so there's always sirens. But, uh... No, their, their system is so messed up. They just, they're outdated. So whenever you get arrested, you end up in the police station for like 10 hours while they just like write stuff out by hand over and over. Oh, yeah. They're in no rush to, uh, to get you out of there, I guess, huh? <laughs> I want to get some of your thoughts on the anti-war movement overall. Do you think that the election of Barack Obama back in 2008, do you think that in any way turned into a setback for the anti-war movement? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm I'm not an Obama fan. I'm not really a fan of that kind of politics. I'm not really a fan of the Republican side of politics either. But even I, as a sort of cynical, skeptical libertarian here, was kind of hoping a little bit for, you know, less of a bellicose administration. And I think the Obama administration in many ways is less of a bellicose administration than the Bush administration, at least in their rhetoric. And yet these acts of war, as we've just discussed, all these drone attacks, bombing in Libya, they attempted to go into Syria. Clearly the empire is still moving forward. So do you think in any way that kind of neutered what was formerly maybe a vibrant anti-war movement during the Bush administration? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Mark. Well, when Obama was elected, it definitely did slow down the peace movement. I was still in college, so I was kind of in my own bubble. It's my understanding from a lot of activists who have been on the front lines, the invasion of Afghanistan, that when Obama came into office, a lot of people just kind of saw it as an opportunity to relax, step back, and assume that he would keep his promises. But, you know, like you said, the empire marches on, and we've seen a massive increase in these withdrawals, just exponential increase. Bush used not that much, and now Obama has just totally changed the face of modern warfare. He wants to scale back the troops, according to Chuck Hagel, but like it, the drone fleet is growing and growing and growing, and we're building more bases around the world as we speak. I mean, it's very insidious. It's very disturbing. But on the other hand, there is a reemergence of the anti-war movement. I think it's safe to say, since the public is a little, you know, what we like to call war-weary, it's been easier for us to fend off potential wars. You mentioned, you know, the administration wanted to go into Syria. I think that it was a victory for the anti-war movement that we didn't, because we mobilized so quickly and so well around that. It was amazing. And then we are yet to bomb Iran, which Israel and the Israel lobby APEC has been pushing us to do so long. But it hasn't happened yet, and I think it's really because of the networks that have been established and created and the war weariness of the public. I think we're doing okay now. I mean, I, I wish there didn't have to be an anti-war movement. This is the ultimate goal. Yeah, I mean, hopefully I it wouldn't require a movement someday. Hopefully it'll just be, you know, what is. Hopefully it would, it would but, seem so ridiculous yeah, to launch a war that we wouldn't need a whole separate movement for it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You touched on something there that I think is important, and it's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and have someone from Code Pink on, because, you know, it's no secret that most people aren't going to confuse Code Pink with, you know, a libertarian organization. I think a lot of libertarians might not agree with some of the other issues you guys work on. And, you know, I, I could, we could spend hours debating that stuff, but that's not the purpose of this show today. But when you said we stopped this attack in Syria from happening, and it was clear they were ready to go. I mean, there was no doubt about it. It was just like Iraq Part 2. You saw all the news reports, all the hysteria, 
and you know it just seemed like tomorrow bobs are going to drop but you know what happened is at least from my point of view is all sorts of people from all different ideologies walks of life or what have you pretty much all came together at the same time on this one specific issue in such an overwhelming fashion that there's no way that there was any political feasibility for them to go through with it. I completely agree with you. <laughs> That's an important thing that like activists like you and I, who might not agree on some other things, I don't want to put that stuff aside because to me, you know, pushing philosophy is the most important thing. That's what we do over on our websites, Lions of Liberty. But at the same time, when it comes to actually, you know, making a change in a certain issue, like in this case, stopping a war, well, great, we can have the philosophical debate tomorrow, but let's come together with these people that we agree with on these issues, with people like Code Pink, who many associate with, you know, the far left or progressives or what have you, <laughs> with libertarians, many of which are associated with the far right. We're kind of blowing up this left-right paradigm and, you know, kind of making it meaningless altogether so we can really push forward on issues of, well, at least issues important to you and I, issues of war and peace. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And when I say that we had established networks of people who were war-weary, I meant to point out that that includes people from all over the political spectrum. Right. And it's really, it's been interesting uh, because that's also been a relevant factor when it comes to, to domestic drones. We've been working with people from all over the political spectrum who are worried about, who have privacy concerns when it comes to, you know, Big Brother flying tens of thousands of drones overhead once the FAA has approved all of the airspace permits by 2015. And it's been great working with different groups. And also another issue I'll just point out is NSA surveillance. I could think we've been a part of this coalition here in the D.C. area that's anti-NSA spying, and there's representatives from the Republican Party, there's libertarians, there's like leftists, it's all over the place and we we just sit around and we have potlucks every week and we talk about how we can, you know, combat NSA spying and it's it's really amazing. Uh so so it's interesting how we see that the big brother like oversized state has really brought together so many people at this point in time. Yeah, that's really an interesting observation because, I mean, not that I like the Big Brother state getting bigger. I don't want more spying. I don't want more wars and more drones. But in a way, it's funny what all of that does because in a way it makes our personal ideology seem smaller for the moment, in the moment that we're fighting against these things. And what it really does is help people of all kind of varieties come together for these issues. And, you know, hey, once we're there together on these issues, yeah, of course, then I'm going to spend time trying to sell people on my ideology and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it's great that we can all see some of these horrible, evil things that are going on and all agree, look, we have to fight this regardless of what we might think, you know, on some other issues. Now, Ali, how can people get involved with Code Pink? Is it just for women? Like, are, is there a place for maybe libertarian women if they want to join the organization? Or what kind of people can join Code Pink and how would they go about that? Well, anyone can join Code Pink. It's led by women and it was started by women, but we have a lot of dudes who work with us and for us and they are hugely welcome. And if you go to codepink.org, you can sign up for our email alerts and we do targeted emails. You can sign up based on where you live so you can find out what's going on. On our website, we have lists of local chapters, so you can get involved in local chapters. Or, you know, you can just look around and see what we do, but we really are open to anyone. And anyone can always email me if they have any questions or if they want to get involved. My email address is Allie at codewing.org. And, yeah, we hope that you'll join us. we got a lot going on, and we need more people.
Well, Allie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Anything else you got going on, you, uh, your social media or any other you know projects you got going on that you want to promote? We are on Twitter, at Code Pink, and if you find our Facebook group, it's facebook.org slash Code Pink Alert. Find us there. We'd love to hook up on social media. We have an action calendar on our website so you can find out what's going on near you. We have a lot coming up over the next few weeks, especially in D.C. and San Francisco, so take a look. Allie McCracken, everybody, thanks for coming on the show today. If you're against the wars, if you're against Big Brother, you might want to take a look at Code Pink. Thanks a lot, Allie. Thank you so much, Mark. We'll be back after a little break. Well, for months now, we've heard U.S. senators talk about the need for a clear media shield law. But now one senator has basically admitted that actual journalists won't be covered at all. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media Moment, brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. The idea of a media shield law is flawed from the get-go. Some people think it's a good idea to have a law that expressly states that journalists cannot be compelled to give up their sources to courts or to law enforcement. But of course, members of the U.S. Senate have now used discussion of a media shield law as a way to define who is, and more importantly, who is not, a journalist. Over the course of the past few months, politicians have been saying amateur journalists don't count. Senator Lindsey Graham even explicitly stated he wasn't sure if bloggers deserve First Amendment protections. Senator Dianne Feinstein insisted that real journalists draw salaries from big corporate media companies. Otherwise, she said she could not extend the privilege of being called a journalist to them. When WikiLeaks first became a big deal, those working on the legislation actually worked hard to make sure that WikiLeaks would not be covered. As I said, the Shield Law argument is flawed from the beginning. But how do we know that the Shield Law won't protect journalists? I'll tell you after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced, while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. Is it about left versus right? No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Well, consider for a moment what New York Senator Chuck Schumer said last week. Schumer discussing the media show law provisions and how, if it became law, it might affect journalist Glenn Greenwald, who reported on the NSA secret surveillance based on documents leaked by Edward Snowden. Quote, it's probably not enough protections to cover him, but it's better than current law. End quote. Now, that's exactly the problem here. We already have a media show law in place. It's called the First Amendment. By these senators needing to define protections, what they're actually doing is defining who is not protected. If Glenn Greenwald can be arrested or blocked from reporting on Edward Snowden's revelations about the NSA, therefore preventing that information from being made public, then true journalism does not exist anymore. Everything else just becomes state-run propaganda. For stories that affect your liberty, you can find me online at benswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. 
You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Ben Swan, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Okay, guys, we are back from break. Thanks to our great sponsors, and thanks to Ellie McCracken of Code Pink for taking the time to talk to me today about some important issues, like war, like drones. Now, I already know what's going to happen after I post this, and it probably won't even come from the regular listeners, but, you know, our site draws audiences from all over the place. We have a few uh, kind of more conservative-leaning sites that send some traffic our way. Other people might stumble upon us from one of our anti-drug war posts. They might come from a more progressive point of view. And, of course, we have all sorts of libertarians coming over, too. So we've got people that come to Lions of Liberty with all sorts of different mindsets. And I already know, I can feel it. I'm going to get some kind of comment to the extent of, how can you call yourself a libertarian and associate with Code Pink? They want the government to spend money on health care and, and Planned Parenthood, and, and they're socialists. Now, whether or not all of that is true it is sort of irrelevant. And I'm not naive. I know what Code Pink is. I know some of the things they stand for that I might not agree with, that a lot of my audience might not agree with, but I'll be damned if they aren't great on the issues of war and peace, if they aren't great on bringing awareness to the drone war, on pointing out many of the awful things done to people overseas, maybe soon here at home, in the name of U.S. foreign policy. And this kind of gets back to this purism thing that we were discussing last week with Robin Kerner. You know, there's a difference between trying to push a consistent philosophy of liberty, of individual rights, and being pure in that sense. Now, the goal of any serious intellectual movement should be to decide exactly what a pure meaning is. And if you come to our site, linesofliberty.com, you'll see we strive to do exactly that. But this may come as a bit of a shock, but there are many people out there in the world who, for a variety of reasons, do not buy the full libertarian philosophy. Many libertarians do not buy the full libertarian philosophy simply because we don't necessarily all agree on what a full libertarian philosophy entails. I certainly have my ideas, and I continue to try to reconcile them with the ideas of others. That is how a philosophy is advanced. But for those people that don't already buy the philosophy, you know, there are a couple things we can do with them. We can just reject them outright. We can push them away, call them socialists, call them naive, and be done with them. Or we can open up a dialogue. We can find issues upon which we already agree and work passionately towards those ends. And in that process, hopefully we can show them some of the root causes of these things. I happen to think that the root cause of the problems of the Middle East, particularly Israelis, Palestinians... It's the lack of consideration of private property rights informing these states, the Jewish state or the proposed Palestinian state even. Now, there's nothing wrong with the concept of a Jewish state in the sense of if it is formed through private property. If a 500 or a 1,000 or 10,000 Jewish citizens that all have adjoining properties want to kind of join together 
and form what they call a Jewish state and say, we want this to be a Jewish state, a place where Judaism is practiced and all of that kind of thing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, that's exactly how a free society would form such organizations. The problem is when you force others out of their private property in order to accomplish that. And when you have an imperial power that decides where borders are instead of private property deciding where borders are that goes this goes back to a lot of what we discussed with RJ Brewer back in our immigration debate that we had that's back in episode 24 highly recommend you checking that out there is no reason that people of various religions and persuasions cannot live in harmony if they respect each other's individual rights and that's why it's important to have the philosophy and develop this philosophy because ultimately man is going to need to change the way we view our fellow man, how we interact with them, and that's what we aim for here at Lions of Liberty. So be sure to keep in touch with us. Don't forget our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. You know, there's this Facebook algorithm. It's not going to let you see most of our posts in your feed, so you got to come over to the page to check everything out, or you can go and click a little box there and turn on notifications for Lions of Liberty. So be sure to do that. If you already follow us on Facebook, you can also find us on the Twitter, on the Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google Plus too. Find us everywhere, because we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep reaching out to people of all persuasions to discuss current events, discuss ideas, and of course, continue to advance the philosophy of liberty as we do so. And you can even help us out. You can come to iTunes and subscribe. If you don't already subscribe on iTunes, go over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us a rating. Hopefully a five-star rating. But hey, just give us any rating. Leave a comment and help us get this show out to more people. You can also find us, of course, on Stitcher Radio. And as I mentioned earlier, every single Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, you can hear this show on Daily Paul Radio. And be sure to tune in next week when my guest will be... Fred Foldbury, an economics lecturer at San Jose State University. We will discuss his work on public goods and private communities. Until then, do I really have to tell you to live long and live free? (laughs) 